5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Hola, this is the discourse of power of rock en español and the desire for democracy, o el rock en español y el anhelo democrático, para más corto. I am Professor Jorge Leal, historian at the University of California in Riverside. In this episode, we're again joined by Dr. Citlali Sosa Rideo, who is a fellow historian at Cal State San Marcos. Dr. Sosa will discuss how rock en español, or rather, el rock nacional argentino, became a space to confront the painful memories of the military dictatorship, even before the dictatorship collapsed in Argentina. This also created an important sonic space across Latin America, as the composition of these lyrics and the listening to these lyrics created a way to engage with the national conscience, to tell stories of the murdered victims, and to deal with the crimes of the dirty wars of the state against the population when the courts and the nation would not. This is a difficult but very important topic, so I invite you to listen in. Welcome back to the Discursive Power of Rock en Español and the Desire for Democracy. I'm your host, Silali Sosa Riddell, and we're back to talk about how rock music made the disappeared visible and helped put a voice to trauma. That is the point of this podcast where we're talking about how there were a number of people who were disappeared during the literally two administrations' dirty wars, uh, but also specifically how rock music or rock en español or rock nacional, which is the national rock, was a space for people to talk about their suffering and specifically to name the, the people who had disappeared and to really give an opportunity for the population, the public, the everyday people to talk together about what they had seen and also what was not being talked about in general society and what also wasn't being prosecuted or wasn't there wasn't any sense of justice. In 1995, Navy Captain Francisco Silingo spoke to the Argentine journalist Horacio Verbitsky about his time when he had thrown people out of planes, out of airplanes, during the 1976-1983 Dirty War in Argentina. Now, strangely enough, his confession actually shocked Argentinian society because they believed that by 1986, many of the aspects of their violent past under the military dictatorship and the earlier military, like um, right-wing fascist government uh, had been put behind them, right? Through a number of, of pardons. So when this event, this Navy captain speaking about what he had done was made public, it renewed a call for prosecution of the perpetrators as more military officers came forward and began to reveal the multiple human rights violations that they had committed in the name of the of the military dictatorship. Now, what this podcast is about is about these conflicts of memory and how memory is constructed. 
and specifically our memory is being constructed by uh, by rock music by rock, rock and espanol here and that these are surface manifestations of traumas that were never resolved about past atrocities in Argentinian Argentinian society so that memory of violence and trauma can all all exist together in this very contradictory way uh, in this podcast you know, we're looking here at rock and espanol uh, because this is really a space for thinking about how it is a significant part of developing contemporary democracies and how it can be an important place for thinking through uh, past undemocratic situations. Rock and Espanol music develops in the 1970s and into the, you know, continues in the 1980s and 1990s and really into the present day and across Latin America. And it became a way for people to engage with the national conscience to tell the stories of the murdered victims of the state, right? The state was murdering their own populations and to help them deal with crimes that were happening against the population, but that would never fully be prosecuted or most people would not be brought to justice. And there's also the added complexity that many of the people who committed the crimes were, were claiming to do them in the name of the higher-ups, right? That they were doing them for higher-up military leadership and they didn't think that they should be prosecuted. Uh, and of course, the higher-ups, you know, the higher levels of the military leadership believed that they, you know, that they didn't want to be the ones to take the fall for the people who are at the, at the bottom, right? So there became this real struggle in many aspects of Argentinian society. And really, this was a problem uh, across Latin America because of the multiple dirty wars. Now, rock en español as a music scene in Argentina, this is which, what we're going to be talking about more specifically here, uh, struggled against censorship even before the dictatorship that began in 1976 because there had been increasing anti-democratic policies in the early 1970s and they increased when Isabel Perón took power after her husband Juan Perón's death in 1974. And the way that her government uh, chose to deal with this new you know, new leadership was to purge anyone they viewed as a leftist from university posts, administrations, the administration universities, and they used federal intervention powers to even unseat leftist governments. On September 30th uh, in 1974, Isabel Perón signed the anti-terrorism law in which the, the government eroded constitutional rights in the name of combating leftist violence. And there was leftist violence uh, by the Montoneros, um, as well as a number of kidnappings and and uh, a few murders. And I say a few because we're talking in contrast to the the many murders that were carried out on behalf of the state. Because I think that's an important contrast. Uh, the Minister of Social Welfare, Jose Lopez Rega, who was openly fascist with and but described as fascist sympathizing. He formed the Argentine Anti-Communist Alliance called the AAA and created a right-wing paramilitary force. Somewhere between late 1973 and late 1974. And in this period, even be this is even before the military coup, they had already carried out nearly 300 murders, including that of uh, Professor Silvio, Fron Silvio Frondizi, who had been the brother of the former president, a congressman, uh, an activist priest, uh, the Buenos Aires province assistant police chief, Julio Troxler, uh, former vice governor, 
former Chilean army head Carlos Prat and other prominent public servants uh, from university leaders uh, and, and also senators. These, the government and paramilitaries use the environment of the leftist kidnappings and the, and the murders to target many opponents of the regime, people who were not engaging in any kind of violence and there really wasn't any kind of attempt to uh, bring you know kidnappers or murderers to justice. It was it became um, just a hit squad, right? Um, which is an attack on democracy, right? Um, Isabel Perón, the president, was persuaded to declare a state of siege on November sixth and suspended, among other rights, habeas corpus. Censorship also marked. Uh, you know, increased and they closed a number of leading dailies uh, such as La Cronica and several other publications throughout Latin America and even banning of, um, the banning of Argentinian television figures. In February 1975, they began an Operation Independence, as it was called, in Tucumán, which was a military campaign that gained notoriety for its brutality, attacking uh, beyond, of course, the insurgents, it attacked elected officials, magistrates, University of Tucumán faculty, and even secondary school teachers. The government also turned on its labor movement, which was had been a, a mainstay of Juan Perón um, for such a significant period of his administration uh, that this was a surprise, right? And the government of, of Isabel Perón classified the labor movement as subversive, right? And this is the name used against anyone who was challenging the administration, even if it was through legitimate spaces, right? So that's why you can think about how Rocan Español is one of the only spaces that's allowed when so many legitimate spaces are, are basically closed down, right? And so the November 1974 election of a left-wing union shop steward at Via Constitución Steel Mill was resulted in a brutal police assault in March 1975 against the facility with uh, as many as 300 workers disappeared. Right, so at the height of the repression, when censorship was at its strictest, prohibition of expression left many artists unable to express themselves. And for Rock en Español, they found that they had uh, less and less words that they could use. And the the thing that I think is really, I think, important to think about in these kinds of repressive situations, both under Isabel Perón and the military dictatorship that follows after the, the 76 coup, is that when they would censor musicians or any kind of cultural, anybody who speaks up in the cultural world, there was often unclear guidelines, right? And that actually worked in their favor, in the favor of the leadership, because then they could make it more and more difficult for anyone who wanted to say anything, right? So the artists would have to constantly negotiate with the censors. And so by this point, you know, in the mid-1970s, uh, rock and Español singers were then using lyrics that they felt would be completely unclear to the censors, right? And because there was no specific words that they knew of, I mean, probably there were a few words that were assumed, but there really wasn't anything written down saying this is what you can and can't do. So people began to use much more poetic and suggestively poetic language. Rock Nacional or Rock en Español musicians would avoid the censors by writing coded lyrics for their songs and subverting the language. And they had a hard time talking about people who were disappeared 
even though that was becoming one of the most clear ways that they were seeing attacks on the population, right? But they did try. And one of the first Moroccan Espanol musicians, Charlie Garcia, Garcia, to do so was when he portrayed disappeared people in a song. And the song uh, was under his first band, Sui Generis or Sui Generis, uh, and their 1974 concept album, Pequeñas Anecdotas Sobre las Instituciones, which was released under the Isabel Perón administration. And in the album, uh, Charlie Garcia talks about uh, repression and censorship, but it was quickly censored. And one of the only songs that was left on the album was taken, it wasn't as clear what it was about because it didn't have the larger context of all of the songs being so clearly against the repressive administration that it was allowed to go through. And the song is called The Show of the Dead or El Show de los Muertos. And in it, a torturer is troubled by admitting all that he has done. And in the song, he says, quote, I've got all the dead here. Who would like to see them? End quote. Tengo los muertos todos aquí. ¿Quién quiere que se le muestre? In the song, he also talks about how he, as a as the murderer, the torturer, is able to sleep soundly after killing without remorse. And yet he still wonders when it will all end. The song condemns both those who accepted these things, who accepted the status quo of a leadership that was murdering its own population and not questioning the creation of the death squads or the torture spaces. But it all, he also is criticizing, the song is also criticizing and condemning the creation of these torture spaces um, themselves, right? So in 1976, when the military coup took place uh, and the military dictatorship started, Charlie Garcia re- uh, named his new band The Bird Making Machine or La Máquina de Hacer Pájaros. So his idea for naming his band this was that he thought that the machine would pursue songs that would be like birds because birds are symbols of freedom. So that hidden within the song lyrics and the music, there would be a number of criticism and indictments against the regime. In the first album, there's one song called Hipercándome, Candombe, which is about a river. And the river is discussed as a sinister place because it is where prisoners are drowned at night when they are dropped from airplanes in operations called, that were you know, casually called death flights, right? The song Hipercándome talks about young people's experiences in this uncertain and frightening atmosphere that was prevailing in the region, right? And the uh, people living in, in um, Buenos Aires, in Argentina. The song also spoke about 
covering your face and covering your hair because you're in hiding. And you know, we can think about the significance of long hair being associated with people who were viewed as subversive, right? Subversive to the state. And as we saw uh, in the, the, the previous podcast, that the, that the significance of long hair was really became a point of subversiveness or associated with subversiveness across Latin America. And also, too, you can think of the United States because of hippies and hippie culture was associated with long hair. And for the conservative world in the United States, too, long hair meant that they were anti-Vietnam War and viewed as subversive as well. And the song says that you cover your face and your hair as if you were cold, but in reality, you're hiding. You're hiding out. And the song also goes on to talk about the dead bodies that were burnt in order to dispose of them. And the song says how the gas and the tar rain down on your, on the rotting corpses. And even with that, even with your high class background, it won't help you very much because you are still in this world, right? In the same year, Leon Gieco launched his album El Fantasma de Canterville, or The Canterville Ghost, and in the title song that's also composed by Charlie Garcia, uh, the lyrics also came under attack by the by the censors, and they had they were forced to modify key phrases. So for example, uh, they tried to put in the song If I Could Kill Them, or uh, became If I Could Hate Them. And then the lyric, I have been shot down many times in the city, became, I have died many times roaming through the city. Now, this song is a powerful allegory because it plays off uh, an allusion to the Oscar Wilde story about a family that tries to get rid of a ghost that is haunting their house, the Canterville ghost. And to the censors, this might have appeared as a harmless story based on a famous Oscar Wilde story. Uh, but now as we look at it, we can think about how the song changes the focus, telling the story from the first-person perspective of the ghost. We can think about how this identification with the ghost serves a number of purposes, because first the ghost is present in the situation despite every attempt to rid their house of the ghost. He is stronger than death. And with the first-person narration, we also get to hear the voice of those who are silenced or who were silenced by their disappearance at the time that the song, at the same time. And we can also think about how this song can represent the survivors, such as the young people who were able to make it and live in at the time, right? But had to live every day afraid for their lives, avoiding the police and trying to be invisible like ghosts.
And I think if we think about the song, I think, you know, there's really an attempt here to to try to really push society to think about how they're still being haunted, even though they have disappeared people's bodies, when there's no proof of what is happening in the way we might think of the importance of having you know, something to show as a way to, to show the nation what has happened, even with that, the disappeared will still impact them, right? Their national conscience is forever marked. And then also, too, thinking about how the ghost is stronger than death. I think there's really, you know, a desire to get the public to realize that that perhaps there is something that they can take away from this, right? Rather than than simply feel only traumatized, right? But try to find some kind of hope in the story of the Canterville ghost and that they can draw from that and make something from it for their own society. Now, by 1982, it was very clear that the Malvinas or the Falkland Island War had been a catastrophe and that the country had been devastated by the dictatorship. And the practice of pushing prisoners alive and naked from military planes into the South Atlantic Ocean was being, which had been whispered about only in Roque Español songs, all of these were becoming increasingly accepted as a fact, as a point of fact. And the public was sensing that this would become, you know, there was an opening and that the military then tried to tried to get the po- the popular vote on its side, right, to become more popular by relaxing censorship. And this actually led to even more songs being released that forced the public to really engage with these major questions of, you know, what to do about the regime, what to do about the disappeared, how to handle and, ha- and how to confront really these questions of justice and injustice. In 1983, Luis Alberto Spinetta released his album Bajo Belgrano, which was his most political album, and included a song called Maribel Se Durmió, or Maribel Fell Asleep.
this song, she does not disappear. Instead, she falls asleep. She is not thrown from the plane into the ocean, as had happened to many people. Instead, she gently sinks in the water in a merry-go-round. She does not die, but looks at us with the eyes of her soul during her voyage to the bottom of the river. And the end of her life, and at the end of her life, she sings her life. And while leaving, she feels, quote, an immense breeze of freedom, end quote. She sings her sorrows to those who listen. And the song operates as a way of connecting all of the Argentinians, including those who had departed, those whose relatives and friends were disappeared and murdered, and those who remained brokenhearted without the ones that they had lost. And the song ultimately invites everybody to join together to sing emotionally as one and to find a way to really rethink the kind of horrors of what had happened to them. In the final months of the 1983 transitional military government, the armed forces try to convince the Argentinian people of four major points. And these are way, these are the arguments that the military is making here, okay? That the dirty war that they rage, that they waged on the population had been legitimate, that the war against an insurgency of the Montoneros and the leftists had been supported by Cuba and the Soviet Union, and so thus any kind of attack on the population was done in the name of patriotism and anti-communism. It put Argentina on the right track of ending its political disintegration and it stimulated the economy and combated corruption. Three, the third point they argued was that even though the counterinsurgency war had terrorized people and killed people without due process, they were able to do so within the margins of the law because they had a legal mandate to repress the population. While tortures and disappearances were not officially sanctioned, they were merely inevitable excesses of war. And that the armed forces who did them were such an important part of society, an inextricable part of Argentinian society, that they could not be persecuted because they had been the only stable institution since the nation began, and thus they were above reproach. Now, one of the main ways that the military tried to create this master narrative and enact it on the population was by hiding the crimes that they committed. And they did this from the beginning, right, by obliterating bodies of people who were assassinated and disappeared, by throwing them out of airplanes into the Atlantic Ocean. Thus, there was never any proof of their disappearances, exactly what had happened to them. Um, and it became then the, the word of the military against the word of the surviving victims. And the people who, and the military would argue that those people were living abroad and hiding or under assumed names. And they, that was the claim that the military made. Under the newly, under the elected president of uh, Raul Alfonsín in 1983, they started the CONADEP, which is a national commission on the disappeared. Uh, and they took over 1,400 depositions and hundreds more from people abroad. 1,400 depositions in Argentina and hundreds more abroad and examined the records of morgues and cemeteries and mass graves and began carrying out forensic investigations in order to uncover the truth. They also visited military bases, police stations, psychiatric hospitals, and all of the sites that had been secret detention centers. Because the Argentinian military always denied having the disappeared in these secret detention centers, there was always hope for by their relatives that the people would be found, although ultimately the, nobody was ever found. 
And what we want to think about here is the continued re-experience of trauma that this must have been for people who were going through this from the initial time at which their loved ones were disappeared to the multiple times in which the the narrative of what would have happened was being fought over in the public, right? In the public conversation. After realizing that the military dictatorship was was ending and there was a new transitional government, uh, Charlie Garcia wrote the song that uh, was ultimately released in 1983 called El Dinosarios, Los Dinosarios, or The Dinosaurs. And in it, he repeatedly uses the word disappear. And by saying, it says your friends in the neighborhood may disappear, radio singers may disappear, people on the media may disappear. Uh, And you can hear that repetition of the word disappear really reminds the public of what has happened to them. And, And he also points to how, you know, this idea that the dinosaurs are, are, are waning and their power is waning and symbolize the military officials just as the dinosaurs with these cold-blooded powerful monster reptiles eventually became extinct so too would the generals now when democracy of course uh, was reinstated and the military began making their claims for this master narrative of convincing the public that they had no reason to continue to protest because this they had everything they had done they had done in the name of anti-communism in the name of um of of, uh creating a better nation of of um fighting against subversives thus they really shut down any possibility of, of of discussion right it became it is our master narrative and this is the answer right so Rokan Espanol continued to speak out against uh the the, the master narrative that was being told by the military. Now, and this became a way for the public to process their mourning and the recuperation of of the you know the stories of people's lives whose lives had been ended. And it became also a way for people to learn how to cope with their losses, right? And and the fact that they were having this fight over memory in the public space, right? And that it's very hard, if, as you can imagine to have someone, the public, the the military saying that something isn't true uh, when it was very clear that people were murdered and people were disappeared, right? President Raul Alfonsin passed laws limiting the extent to which war crimes would be tried under the full stop law in 1986. And it stated that after the trial of the military dictatorship by which some high-ranking military officials were convicted and sentenced, there would no longer be any need for the investigation or prosecution of any of all of any other suspects. And in 1987, with the due obedience law, this absolved all lower and middle-ranking military officers from their participation in kidnapping, torture, violence, sexual abuse, rape, and killing of prisoners. Because the argument was made that they had been following orders. And when the next president came into power, Carlos Menem, in 1989, he granted pardons to all military officials. As you can imagine, all these presidential decrees created a sense of helplessness and again, re-victimized the population who had been attacked all over again or who felt that they had been attacked all over again. And Rock and Español helped people feel visible and feel that those who had been disappeared would perhaps finally be remembered, even if they wouldn't ever see justice. In 1992, Alejandro Lerner released a song called Indulto, or Pardon. 
And in the song, he expresses the feeling of loneliness and helplessness when he thinks about the unknown fate of those who had disappeared. And he sings, quote, Where are the traces of my feelings I will not forget? I owe it to the ones that have suffered. I owe it to the ones that are no longer here. I owe it to the ones who have gone somewhere. I can feel loneliness surrounding me. I can feel trapped by loneliness. End quote. think of here how much there's really this sense of helplessness right but I do think that there is something important about being able to do it together right to sing it together to hear it together and to think of it how it might be listened to on an individual level listening to it through um, you know through your headphones right but also listening to it in concert and how that can be a really important way for people to come together in 1998 the band Bittersweet Bergarabat released a song called Vuelos, or Flights, right? A direct reference to the death flights. Uh, and the voice of the person who's telling the story is the one who had disappeared. And he is talking to his murderer in his last words before the end of his life. And he predicts, quote, You will see me hanging from your temples. I will come back. You are getting rid of me, but I will stay in you. End quote. Solo voy a volver, siempre me vas a ver Y cuando regrese de este vuelo eterno Solo verás en mí, siempre a través de mí Un paisaje de espanto así The song gives all the power and the voice to the person who had disappeared and cursing and ultimately curses the life of his or her killer with guilt. And it is a way really of um, victimizing his or her killer, right, by doing so. Ultimately, these songs tell us about how important it is for people to engage in mourning, especially when there was so much left and ignored after the end of the dirty war prior to the military dictatorship and the dirty war during the military dictatorship. And we can see how important it is 
for people to be able to have these kind of conversations in the public and national conscience. And the Rocknes Racional or Rocknes Español movement allowed for people to be able to remember those who had disappeared and it act as a voice of reporting and remembering those who had been oppressed by the dirty wars in Argentina and through these lyrics. Thank you. Thanks to la profesora Sosa Ridel for her contributions today. In this episode, we heard El Show de los Muertos by Su Generis, Leon Gieco with El Fantasma de Canterville, Luis Alberto Spinetta con Maribel Se Dormió. Además, we listened to Alejandro Lerner's Indulto and Versuit Bergarabat's Anderson Vuelos. This has been the discursive power of rock and español and the desire for democracy. I am Jorge Leal, historian at UC Riverside. This podcast series features the collaboration of Jose Vergara, director of Miramonte Music Program. We're also thankful for the support of the University of California Humanities Research Institute. This project is supported in part by the University of California Office of the President MRPI funding. Until next time. Y la bruma rebota siempre hacia aquí. Solo voy a volver, siempre me vas a ver. Y cuando regrese de este vuelo eterno, solo verás en mí, siempre a través de mí, un paisaje de espacio.